you're following in the church Bibles, the first reading is from Psalm 18 on page 550. And I'll be reading verses 1 to 2, 6 to 9, and verse 28. That's Psalm 18. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The earth trembled and quaked and the foundations of the mountain shook they trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming fire came from his mouth, burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. You, Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. And the second reading, which is on page 1195 of the Bibles, is taken from 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, and a very, very happy new year. It's lovely to see you, and to anyone watching online, can't see you, but very happy new year to you too. Let's pray that the Lord would speak into our lives this morning. Father God, we thank you for the chance to come together to worship you, and we pray that today you would strengthen us, encourage us, and fill us with your hope, in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's message is something of a standalone message. I've taken the opportunity to think ahead and think what would be a good message for us as we go into a new year. And the title for today's talk, and actually it is going to be the subject of talks for the next few weeks, is how to live securely when the world is shaking or more personally, when your world and my world is shaking. And I really want this to be an encouraging message and for us not to get bogged down when thinking about quite how much the world is shaking. And therefore, the verse that's above my head, uh, you can keep reading that over and over and over again. If you get bored of what I'm saying or your concentration wavers, just try and memorize that verse and it will hold you in good stead. Have you ever turned up to an event, I wonder, and discovered that you've got exactly the wrong kit with you? I could think immediately of a couple of times I've done that, and actually neither was very consequential, it was little more than embarrassing. I can remember my father taking me off to an event at the Athenaeum Club, and he told me it was a black tie event, so the two of us pitched up in black tie, and it wasn't. Well, you know, it was a minor disaster, not even a disaster, but 
I did feel it was embarrassing. As I'm looking out to talk, I recognize that at least one of the people listening to me is a golfer, so you will understand the next illustration I have. I was invited out to America and um, to play on a very, very uh, famous golf course called Seminole with some extremely uh, keen golfers. And uh, as we stood on the first tee, they looked at the club that I had in my hand and said, Rupert, that belongs to a museum. And they were right. They had titanium shafted this, that, and the other. And I was standing there with a driver with an old wooden head. And they hadn't seen anything like that for years and years and years. Well, now, those kind of mistakes don't matter too much. But then I could think of other times when people have turned up with the wrong equipment. And it did matter. So I'm sure many of us are familiar with a picture of the mountain climber Mallory. And it's quite a famous picture of him going on his expedition. It's widely believed he is the first man to have climbed Everest, so it's a mystery as to whether he got to the top or not. But it's a mystery to me that he got anywhere, because when you see his apparel, he's wearing a sports jacket like this and just a couple of extra vests. And, and you know, we, we think that's nuts. He, he's not got the right kit on. He's doomed to fail, and he did fail. But I think a better illustration of what I'll be going on to say is, is actually to imagine an event that happens not far from here. I love going to see it, just around the corner at Buckingham Palace, where you can see uh, the changing of the guard. And those ceremonial events are wonderful to watch. But the very soldiers that turn up for the ceremonial events wearing their bearskins and their fine tunics, they also are to be found in combat duties, fighting in actual wars. And it would be ridiculous, costly and absurd, probably cost them their life, if they turned up for active combat in Afghanistan, Iran or the Falklands, say, in the past, still wearing their ceremonial kit. We understand they have to exchange parade gear to combat gear. And we also understand that soldiers can't, at least I don't think they can, sign up just to be ceremonial soldiers and refuse combat duties. Now the thing is, Christ followers, you and me, we sign up to follow Christ all the time too. We can't just be ceremonial Christians, people who turn up for big events wearing certain type of clothes. We're called to follow him everywhere faithfully, not just, uh, well, not just the parade ground, but the battlefields too. And more and more and more, we are on a battlefield. And more and more and more, our world is being shaken. That's true for everyone. The world is being shaken. And now, here we could get very gloomy indeed, but I don't really need to give you a long catalogue because we know it. People are worried today about climate change, and rightly so. We are much more aware of war zones, and rightly so. We're aware of pandemics, and rightly so. So actually, I think the whole world is being shaken. Not just the Christian world is being shaken, but the Christian world is too. And I want to make the point to reassure us that shaking the world is God's prerogative. And he promises in the scriptures that he will do it. 
He promises in the scriptures that he will do it. Probably, this is most familiar to us, if it is familiar at all, through listening to Handel's Messiah. And when the bass stands up and sings, I will shake the earth, you know that Handel had a grip on what it meant to be shaken. He's quoting from Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heaven and the earth, the sea, the dry land, and I will shake all the nations. And when calamities come upon countries and nations and individuals and we're shaken, then we face a choice. It's like being sifted. And in the scriptures, people generally respond in one of two ways. Sometimes, as in Isaiah and the book of Revelation, they hide themselves. It's very vividly put, actually, in Isaiah. People will flee to caves in the rocks, to holes in the ground, from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. And in that day, people will throw away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and idols of gold, which they made to worship. And they will despair, some people. But others will turn to the living God. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, you, I'm sure you remember that Jesus introduces us to what you might call a stress test. You know, after the banking collapse, there were these stress tests put in place in the hope that if you could prepare yourself for these things happening, there wouldn't be a great collapse. Well, Jesus talks about a stress test. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, he paints a picture of two houses that look outwardly identical. You can't tell from what you can see that there is any difference at all. But when the stress comes, when the rain comes, when the floods come, when the winds come, one of the houses collapses. When it shakes, one house collapses, the house built on sand. The one built on rock survives. And what defines the difference? Well, Jesus says, those who hear my words and do them are like people who build a house upon a rock. So what I'm saying is shaking isn't outside the expected as far as God is concerned. But I want to alert us that we're moving into dangerous territory as followers of Christ, which is above the normal shaking. As I was thinking about the coming year and I was praying about it and reflecting on it, the phrase that kept coming back to me was, Christians are living in contested space. We are living in this country more and more in contested space. If you want examples of contested space, they're far too uh, easy for me to get now. People who live in the Gaza Strip understand all about what contested space is. Whether they're Palestinians or Israeli, they know that it's uncomfortable to live in that strip. People who live in the area that was Crimea understand what it is. You ask a Ukrainian, they know what contested space is. Every day is uncomfortable. We as followers of Christ are discovering that the land we live in, the atmosphere we breathe is increasingly contested. So it's going to be important that we know how to be strong, how to prevail, how to feel secure when such things are going on. And that's why this verse is all important to have in mind. 
You, Lord, keep my lamp burning. My Lord turns my darkness into light. Actually, there's a parallel verse in the Psalm, two Psalms earlier. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And that actually summarizes very much the direction of travel of this talk. The most surprising verse to me, perhaps in the whole of scripture, comes in Paul's last letter to Timothy. Paul is in dire straits. He's in prison. He's dying. He knows he's dying. He knows that his days on earth are literally numbered. Time is running out. He knows that. He says so. He's had a terrible time. His friends have all deserted him and he catalogues them by name. He's physically suffering. He's cold. He asks that someone would go and get him his cloak. He is lonely. He says of himself, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. And then he comes up with a surprising verse to me. 2 Timothy 2 verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Now this really surprises me because I feel, how could you forget Jesus Christ? What an extraordinary thing to say. Remember Jesus Christ. How could you forget Jesus Christ? Is it possible to forget him? Absolutely it is. Totally it is. And when the pressure's on and your world is being shaken and you are being shaken, the very first thing that we have to do and the most difficult thing that we have to do, which might take all the energy we've got left in us, is to find a way to remember Jesus Christ and who he is. I find it so comforting that as prominent a witness to Christ as C.S. Lewis should come clean on what a battle he found it to focus on Jesus Christ. As ever, he has an amazingly simple and direct and communicative way of putting it, and this is how he does put it. The real problem of the Christian life comes where people don't expect it. It comes the very moment you wake up every morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals, and the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting the other stronger, quieter life come flooding in, and so on, all day, standing back from all your natural fussings and frettings, coming in out of the wind. We can only do it for moments at first, but from those moments, a new sort of life will be spreading through our system, because now we're letting him work at the right part of us. It's the difference between paint which merely dries on the surface and a dye or stain which soaks right through. Now, friends, I don't know if you've discovered this, but I have. It's not easy. It's easy to say. It's challenging to apply and actually do. It's a lifetime skill that we learn and relearn. Or not. The disciples 
were not naturally good at this. It didn't come quickly, it didn't come easily, and they failed. Let me give you a very obvious example. You will remember a time early on in the Gospels where it's described that they're with Jesus in a boat. Now, a number of those disciples were fisher, fisher folk. They understood about boats, they understood about lakes, they understood about storms, and they were in a mess. Uh, this tempest came up from absolutely nowhere. They were caught on the hop, and they were frightened for their lives. And uh, their world was shaking, big time. And they despaired. And eventually, they wake Jesus up. Mark tells us with a, an eyewitness touch that Jesus was asleep on a cushion. And they wake Jesus up and they say, Teacher, don't you care if we perish? Now, there are circumstances that are going to come our way which will shake us up. I wish it were not the case, but it is the case. And they're not just international events. They can be very personal events. It can be a financial worry. It can be a health issue or whatever. None of us are immune to shaking. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? They catch us unaware. The people who lived in Gaza, they had no idea what was coming their way after October the 7th. The people who lived in Ukraine, they had no idea what was going to go on. We have very little clue about what it is that can shake us. You need to wake Jesus up. Not that he needs waking up, but you need to remember Jesus Christ. Turn to him quickly. Jesus actually asked them a question. Why were you afraid? I, I think that's a very unfair question. I, I would have wanted to say, well, it's pretty obvious why we're afraid. We're being overwhelmed. They couldn't say what I'm about to say because they lived before the event. But I would want to say, we know that Canute couldn't turn back the waves, so why should you? And that's the point. He can. There is nothing that God cannot do. He did command the waves to be still, and they were still. Here we go. This is the one point of the sermon. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. As the writer of the Hebrews puts it, the author and perfecter of our faith. And the reason I keep stressing this is because it is so hard to do. So when the psalmist says, I set the Lord before me so I won't be shaken, that is the battle. Disciplining ourselves somehow to turn our eyes to see Jesus full in the face. Let me give you another example to be a bit fairer on the disciples, which seems to indicate they really could have learned this lesson and did learn the lesson. I'm now reaching to early on in the book of Acts, and a much more frightening situation, as a matter of fact. So within, within their recent memory is the time when Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin and was sentenced to be tortured, stripped, tortured, crucified, put to death, publicly shamed. And now, early on in the book of Acts, you find that Peter and John are hauled before exactly the same people and called to account. And actually, just reading it is scary. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. So there they are. They've been abused already. 
The next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. And I'm pretty sure that's a rogues gallery. And they had Peter and John brought before them and they began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? And that's a key moment. It must have been so tempting to go quietly, must it not? They understood in a trice that if they compromised just a little, if they sat on their faith just a little, they could get out much easier. But it doesn't seem to have occurred to them to want to do that. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, but who God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you. Salvation is found in no one else, because there's no one else under heaven, no other name given under heaven by which we can be saved. I always think, naught out of 10 for diplomacy, 10 out of 10 for clarity, 10 out of 10 for truth. It doesn't surprise me really that the verdict was they called them in again and they commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, what is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Do you think they left that meeting quaking? I do. How could it be otherwise? If, you, if you've ever made a bold stand for your faith, you might well have experienced this. A moment of boldness comes to you, maybe in the office, maybe in your street, maybe in your family, and you speak with particular clarity, and you put your cards on the table, and it feels absolutely fine for about 30 seconds, and then as you walk away, you think, ah, what have I just done? What's going to happen now? And if you've never experienced that, I, I can easily say with a degree of certainty that if you start speaking out with clarity, you soon will feel like that. And because I think they must have been shaking, because they knew absolutely of their vulnerability, because they knew totally about the power of the people they've been standing in front of, that is why the first words of their prayer are so significant. Just two words. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. And then we happen to know what they went on to pray because it's recorded for us. You made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in it. Can you see what they did? They turned their eyes upon Jesus. They remembered Jesus Christ. That was a skill they were putting into operation. And when you remember Jesus Christ, what you're remembering too in the same breath, in the same thought, is quite how powerful he is. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Well, I can't think of anything more difficult than raising someone from the dead. I can't think of an accomplishment which is greater than that. 
And I often think to myself a very simple thought. If Jesus could raise people from the dead, if he was raised from the dead, what can't I trust him with? I think of it like this. Suppose that a friend of yours was a brain surgeon or a heart surgeon. Just you know, use your imagination. For all I know they are. But, um, or, okay, if you don't look very thrilled with that one, suppose that they're an accountant, qualified accountant. You have them over for lunch. Now, if you were using the brain surgeon idea, your child has a splinter. Do you trust the brain surgeon to remove the splinter from your child? Well, I would have thought you do. Because the logic goes in your head so quickly, if they can do these complex operations on hearts or brains, I think they can basically take a splinter out of a child's finger. Or if we're using the accountant analogy, do you allow the accountant to help with your child's elementary homework and mathematics? Some of you are nudging each other and saying, no, why would you? But anyway, the answer is meant to be yes. Because you think that if someone can balance the books of an international company, they can probably do two plus five. If you can do the greater thing, it, it makes sense to trust with the simpler thing. If Jesus can be raised from the dead, why can't we trust him with everything else? If that's what comes to mind when I fix my mind and fix my eyes on Jesus, peace will begin to reign again. That is the point the scriptures are making. There are a few challenges that come our way when we take this attitude and take this technique. So I ought to mention them just briefly. There is a constant pressure from the world to compromise and it can grind you down. Because you're not foolish to say to yourself, look, if I bend a little, if I'm more accommodating, surely things can get quieter. And who doesn't want that? But friends, we don't have a freedom to do that if we want to remain truthful to the gospel. There are situations where the truth is hard-edged. Salvation comes through no one else. I don't have the right to rewrite that. If I do rewrite it, I'm no longer speaking truth. As I said at the beginning, we don't have the freedom to take our uniform off just to go quietly. You know, if you can't compromise, you might say to yourself, well, why not just keep stum, keep quiet? But the disciples didn't take that attitude because Jesus told us to tell everyone the good news and keeping silent doesn't tell anyone anything we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard as I reflected on this I was thinking can I think of an example of this and very strange in the days before I was a Christian I, I was fiercely anti-Christian I, I went to the kind of school where you had to attend chapel very often I was a music scholar so I went to chapel twice on Sundays and every day of the week. I sat through endless sermons and most of them kind of glanced off and went over me or around me. But there was one talk given by one man that I do remember. And his name was Richard Fernbrandt and he was a Romanian pastor and he had been tortured and lived in prison and he told the most gruesome stories and I suppose that's what caught my attention really. Uh, one of the stories that he told was this one. And the fact that I can remember it so many years later strikes me as strange. But he told a story that he'd been 
amongst the congregation in Romania. When the, when the communists came in with their guns and uh, they utterly disrupted the service and they grabbed off the wall of the church an icon and they put it on a chair in the center of the church and they had their guns out and they commanded that the members of the congregation would come forward and spit on this icon. And Richard Wernbrandt described how the congregation filed forward and did this, except for one girl who he said knelt down and wiped with her arm all the spittle off the icon. Now, I don't remember what happened to that girl in the story, but I do remember being impacted and moved by it then, and I'm still impacted and moved by it now. And I think it, it's bearing witness to what I'm trying to say. We have to speak out and live out what it is we believe, even if it means our world shakes more. And it also occurs to me that when we do that, we give permission to others who are looking at us to come clean with their faith too, whether it's in our family, our street, our communities, or our places of work. A couple of quick points and then I'll, I'll close these very quick. Don't battle alone. The disciples never went it alone. I'll come back to this in a later, later week. They went back to the fellowship. If your world is going to shake in the coming year, it's going to be so important that you're not trying to get through this alone. And frankly, there is no need to. There are small fellowship groups that operate in this church. Get yourself into one of those. Come and talk to me, Mark or Sam, and we'll do our best to help link you to one. And lastly, ask the Holy Spirit for his help. There are times when the Holy Spirit will strengthen you because your strength alone will not be enough. Just trying harder will not be enough. It's you, Lord, who keep my lamp burning. It's my God who turns my darkness into light, not self-help and trying a bit harder. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that nothing is hidden from you. Nothing's going to come our way this year which is hidden from you. And we pray even today that you would strengthen us from the inside out. We pray even today, Holy Spirit, that you would give us boldness and bravery, even to admit to ourselves both where we've fallen and where we need help and opportunities that you give us to rely on you and shine for you. Thank you, Lord, that it's on your heart that your sheep will follow you and you provide all that we need to do that faithfully. Amen.